Part 1, Section 15 of The Dark Flower. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ashley Jane. The Dark Flower by John Galsworthy. Section 15. Mark's nineteenth birthday rose in grey mist, slowly dropped its veil to the grass, and shone clear and glistening. He woke early. From his window he could see nothing in the steep park but the soft blue-grey, balloon-shaped oaks suspended one above the other among the round-topped boulders. It was in early morning that he always got his strongest feeling of wanting to model things. Then and after dark, when for want of light, it was no use. This morning he had the craving badly, and the sense of not knowing how weighed down his spirit. His drawings, his models, they were all so bad, so fumbly. If only this had been his twenty-first birthday and he had his money and could do what he liked. He would not stay in England. He would be off to Athens or Rome or even to Paris and work till he could do something. And in his holidays he would study animals and birds in wild countries where there were plenty of them and you could watch them in their haunts. It was stupid having to stay in a place like Oxford, but at the thought of what Oxford meant, his roaming fancy, like a bird hypnotised by a hawk, fluttered, stayed suspended, and dived back to earth. And that feeling of wanting to make things suddenly left him. It was as though he had woken up, his real self, then lost that self again. Very quietly he made his way downstairs. The garden door was not shuttered, not even locked. It must have been forgotten overnight. Last night. He had never thought he would feel like this when she came, so bewildered and confused, drawn towards her but by something held back. And he felt impatient, angry with himself, almost with her. Why could he not be just simply happy as this morning was happy? He got his field glasses and searched the meadow that led down to the river. Yes, there were several rabbits out. With the white marguerites and the dew cobwebs it was all moonflowery and white, and the rabbits being there made it perfect. He wanted one badly to model from, and for a moment was tempted to get his rook rifle. But what was the good of a dead rabbit? Besides, they looked so happy. He put the glasses down and went back to his greenhouse to get a drawing block, thinking to sit on the wall and make a sort of midsummer night's dream sketch of flowers and rabbits. Someone was there, bending down and doing something to his creatures. Who had the cheek? Why, 
It was Sylvia, in her dressing gown. He grew hot, then cold, with anger. He could not bear anyone in that holy place. It was hateful to have his things even looked at. And she... she seemed to be fingering them. He pulled the door open with a jerk and said, "'What are you doing?' He was indeed so stirred by righteous wrath that he hardly noticed the gasp she gave and the collapse of her figure against the wall. She ran past him and vanished without a word. He went up to his creatures and saw that she had placed on the head of each one of them a little sprig of jessamine flower. Why, it was idiotic. He could see nothing at first but the ludicrousness of flowers on the heads of his beasts. Then the desperation of this attempt to imagine something graceful, something that would give him pleasure, touched him. For he saw now that this was a birthday decoration. From that it was only a second before he was horrified with himself. Poor little Sylvia! What a brute he was! She had plucked all that jessamine, hung out of her window and risked falling to get hold of it, and she had woken up early and come down in her dressing gown just to do something that she thought he would like. Horrible what he had done! Now, when it was too late, he saw, only too clearly, her startled white face and quivering lips and the way she had shrunk against the wall. How pretty she had looked in her dressing gown, with her hair all about her, frightened like that. He would do anything now to make up to her for having been such a perfect beast. The feeling, always a little with him, that he must look after her, dating, no doubt, from days when he had protected her from the bulls that were not there, and the feeling of her being so sweet and decent to him always, and some other feeling too. All these suddenly reached poignant climax. He simply must make it up to her. He ran back into the house and stole upstairs, Outside her room he listened with all his might, but could hear nothing. Then tapped softly with one nail, and putting his mouth to the keyhole, whispered, Sylvia! Again and again he whispered her name. He even tried the handle, meaning to open the door an inch, but it was bolted. Once he thought he heard a noise like sobbing, and this made him still more wretched. At last he gave it up. She would not come, would not be consoled. He deserved it, he knew, but it was very hard. And dreadfully dispirited, he went up to his room, took a bit of paper, and tried to write. Dearest Sylvia, it was most awfully sweet of you to put your stars on my beasts. It was just about the most sweet thing you could have done. I am an awful brute, but of course, if I had only known what you were doing, I should have loved it. Do forgive me. I deserve it, I know. 
only it is my birthday. Your sorrowful Mark. He took this down, slipped it under her door, tapped so that she might notice it, and stole away. It relieved his mind a little, and he went downstairs again. Back in the greenhouse, sitting on a stool, he ruefully contemplated those chapletted beasts. They consisted of a crow, a sheep, a turkey, two doves, a pony, and sundry fragments. She had fastened the jessamine sprigs to the tops of their heads by a tiny daub of wet clay, and had evidently been surprised trying to put a sprig into the mouth of one of the doves, for it hung by a little thread of clay from the beak. He detached it and put it in his buttonhole. Poor little Sylvia! She took things awfully to heart. He would be as nice as ever he could be to her all day. And, balancing on his stool, he stared fixedly at the wall against which she had fallen back. The line of her soft chin and throat seemed now to be his only memory. It was very queer how he could see nothing but that, the way the throat moved, swallowed, so white, so soft. And he had made it go like that. It seemed an unconscionable time till breakfast. As the hour approached, he haunted the hall, hoping she might be first down. At last he heard footsteps and waited, hidden behind the door of the empty dining room, lest at sight of him she would turn back. He had rehearsed what he was going to do, bend down and kiss her hand and say, Dorsenia del Toboso is the most beautiful lady in the world, and I the most unfortunate knight upon this earth. From his favourite passage, out of his favourite book, Don Quixote. She would surely forgive him then, and his heart would no longer hurt him. Certainly she could never go on making him so miserable if she knew his feelings. She was too soft and gentle for that. Alas, it was not Sylvia who came, but Anna, fresh from sleep, with her ice-green eyes and bright hair. And in sudden strange antipathy to her, that strong, vivid figure, he stood dumb. And this first lonely moment, which he had so many times in fancy spent locked in her arms, passed without even a kiss. For quickly, one by one, the others came. But of Sylvia only news through Mrs. Doone that she had a headache and was staying in bed. Her present was on the sideboard. A book called Sarta Resartus. Mark, from Sylvia, August 1st, 1880. Together with Gordy's cheque, Mrs. Doon's pearl pin, old Tingle's stones of Venice, and one other little parcel wrapped in tissue paper, four ties of varying shades of green, red and blue, hand-knitted in silk. 
a present of how many hours made short by the thought that he would wear the produce of that clicking. He did not fail in outer gratitude, but did he realise what had been knitted into those ties? Not then. Birthdays, like Christmas days, were made for disenchantment. Always the false gaiety of gaiety arranged, always that pistol to the head. Confound you! Enjoy yourself! How could he enjoy himself with the thought of Sylvia in her room made ill by his brutality? The vision of her throat working, swallowing her grief, haunted him like a little white soft spectre all through the long drive out onto the moor, and the picnic in the heather, and the long drive home. Haunted him so that when Anna touched or looked at him he had no spirit to answer, no spirit even to try and be with her alone, but almost a dread of it instead. And when at last they were at home again, and she whispered, What is it? What have I done? He could only mutter, Nothing. Oh, nothing. It's only that I've been a brute. At that enigmatic answer she might well search his face. Is it my husband? He could answer that, at all events. Oh, no. What is it then? Tell me. They were standing in the inner porch, pretending to examine the ancestral chart, dotted and starred with dolphins and little full-rigged galleons sailing into harbours, which always hung just there. Tell me, Mark, I don't like to suffer. What could he say, since he did not know himself? He stammered, tried to speak, could not get anything out. Is it that girl? Startled, he looked away and said, Of course not. She shivered and went into the house. But he stayed, staring at the chart with a dreadful stirred-up feeling of shame and irritation, pity, impatience, fear, all mixed. What had he done, said, lost? It was that horrid feeling of when one has not been kind and not quite true, yet might have been kinder if one had been still less true. Ah, but it was all so mixed up. It felt all bleak too, and wintry in him, as if he had suddenly lost everybody's love. Then he was conscious of his tutor. Ah, friend Lennon, looking deeply into the past from the less romantic present. Nice things, those old charts. The dolphins are extremely jolly. It was difficult to remember not to be ill-mannered then. Why did Stormer jeer like that? He just managed to answer. Yes, sir, I wish we had some now. There are so many moons we wish for, Lennon, and they none of them come tumbling down. The voice was almost earnest, and the boy's resentment fled. He felt sorry, but why he did not know. 
In the meantime, he heard his tutor say, let us dress for dinner. When he came down to the drawing room, Anna in her moonlight coloured frock was sitting on the sofa talking to Sylvia. He kept away from them. They could neither of them want him. But it did seem odd to him, who knew not too much concerning women, that she could be talking so gaily, when only half an hour ago she had said, Is it that girl? He sat next her at dinner. Again it was puzzling that she should be laughing so serenely at Gordy's stories. Did the whispering in the porch then mean nothing? And Sylvia would not look at him. He felt sure that she turned her eyes away simply because she knew he was going to look in her direction. And this roused in him a sore feeling. Everything that night seemed to rouse that feeling of injustice. He was cast out and he could not tell why. He had not meant to hurt either of them. Why should they both want to hurt him so? And presently there came to him a feeling that he did not care. Let them treat him as they liked. There were other things besides love. If they did not want him, he did not want them. And he hugged this reckless, unhappy, don't-care feeling to him with all the abandonment of youth. But even birthdays come to an end and moods and feelings that seem so desperately real die in the unreality of sleep. End of chapter 15 Recording by Ashley Jane